Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. We're continuing our series, That They May Be One. And if you notice the little subtitles, That They May Be One, says relationships, uh, marriage, sex, and worship. And um, we're going to handle that three-letter word tonight. We're going to get to sex. I think in, in the church, we often don't talk about sex, or we talk about it in a way, and we all get uncomfortable, or we, we think about the church not really knowing how to handle the topic of sex. And But tonight, we're going to talk about sex, because sex is part of relationships. It's part of, it's part of marriage. Uh, you know, when we think about sex, uh, there's a lot of different views on what sex is for. In his book on marriage, Tim Keller mentions that really there's kind of three general views of what sexuality is about. One, one is that sex is a natural appetite. So if you're hungry, you eat. Uh, if you want sex, you, mm, okay. Um, it's a natural appetite. Number two sees it more as like a physical act meant for propagation, what creating babies. In other words, sometimes the church has viewed it this way as like, Let's not talk about the pleasure. Let's not talk about um, any kind of details of sexuality. It's just for producing more humans. It's a physical act. There's no spiritual part of it. That's another way to view sexuality. And a third way is to view sexuality as self-expression, where you follow your desires towards self-realization. So I want to express myself through sexuality. You know, one way I saw this recently... um, I saw a little thing on Instagram. If you could do the next slide. It says, a woman with nine months left to live asked her husband if she can sleep with her ex just one last time. This comes from the account Inside History. A husband shared on Reddit that his dying wife's last wish is to have one final intimate encounter with her ex, whom she considers her most physically compatible lover. He's torn between granting her wish and feeling hurt, betrayed by the request. According to the doctor, she may need a wheelchair in four to five months, and by month eight, she'll likely be bedridden for her final weeks. Now, of course, we feel for the woman, and if you look that one up and go into the comments section, the fights are pretty interesting. Um, but there is an idea, what's wrapped up in that is like sex is self-expression. Part of what this woman wants to do is express herself sexually before she dies with her ex, even though she's married to someone else. So these three views of sexuality, whether it's as a natural appetite or a physical act or self-expression are all throughout our culture. And really, we kind of almost adopt them without thinking about it. Our culture has been moving to disconnect sex from several things over the past 50 or 60 years. Uh, First, our, our culture has disconnected sexuality from childbearing. In 1960, the oral contraceptive, the pill was introduced, which made it possible to have a sexual relationship with someone without technically the risk of having a baby. And that actually wasn't allowed to be given to singles in 1960. It wasn't until 1972 that single people were allowed to take the pill. But in that, we disconnected sexuality from the possibility of childbearing. But then also with that came this idea that sexuality can be disconnected from marriage. And so throughout history, most cultures have seen sexuality as tied to a permanent relationship between a man and a woman. 
it's not really until recently that our culture is experimenting with this idea that anybody can have sex with anybody as long as the two of them consent. It's been disconnected from marriage. Third, in 2015, our, our culture made a decision to disconnect it legally from male-female relationships. In 2015, uh, the Supreme Court made a five to four decision in favor of legalizing same-sex marriage. One of the first times that a culture has really embraced this. And so we've disconnected sexuality from male and female relationships. But number four, our culture is continuing to move towards uh, disconnecting sexuality from a emotional commitment. So the more apps we get on our phone, like uh, Tinder, things like that, you can find someone else who wants to have a sexual relationship without any commitment. So we're disconnecting sex from a mutual sacrifice and an emotional commitment. And where our culture is really heading is we're moving away from, from connecting sex to people. Sex is being disconnected from human beings. And so as artificial intelligence rises, people are beginning to have romantic relationships with a chatbot or even sexual relationships with a robot. So this is where our, our culture's moving. We're making these, these disconnections. And John Mark Comer points all these out. But despite the fact that our culture is making all these disconnections, uh, we as, as Christians believe that we should make connections about what God says about sexuality. And so tonight, even though this is hard to talk about, even, even though in our culture it feels awkward, uh, we're going to look at what Scripture says about sexuality. So I'm going to read four passages to you. Some of them are by Jesus, some of them are by Paul, some of them are by an author that we don't know, but I'm just going to jump in. Is that all right? Okay. Matthew 19, this is Jesus talking. Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read Jesus' reply that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Verse Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God, this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects us does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. And then our last passage, 1 Corinthians 9, 6, 9 through 20. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, Verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that, the Lord, that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says, and then he repeats this, what Jesus already said, the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. The Word of God. 1999, I worked a summer camp in Colorado, and we trained to have kids come in weekly and do these adventures with them. And one of the things we had to train on was a ropes course. If you've never been on a ropes course, a ropes course is uh, about 30 feet in the air. You climb a ladder to enter the ropes course. Ropes go from tree to tree, and you traverse 30 feet in the air uh, from different obstacle to different obstacle. And uh, that's me, much younger. I made sure to pick the picture where I looked very brave and not the one where I was grimacing in fear. Um, there was two pictures. I chose that one. Now, I remember that day very clearly because I remember we had to climb up a cargo net and enter the ropes course. But before we started all that, they sat us down and they said, listen, um, this is going to be a lot of fun. You're really going to enjoy this. In fact, go ahead and pick a partner to buddy up with, and two of you are going to do this together. And as you go through, you're going to find various obstacles. The rope course is not going to be the same way throughout the entire time. You're going to have to figure it out as you go. But there's really one rule here. When you get up there, you are to take the rope that is tied to you. We had a harness that you can see on there, and there was a rope that was tied to that harness. And they said over and over again, that rope is going to have two hooks. And you are to hook those hooks onto the safety wire. And you can take one of those hooks off if you're switching to a new rope, but do not take both of those hooks off at the same time. Because if you take both of those hooks off at the same time, there will be nothing holding you safely to the wire. And so we listened and, you know, we're young and we're kind of like, this will be fun. So I don't remember who I was paired with, but it was fun. We went up and we kind of, you know, got in there. And of course, I was showing off a little bit, trying to run across the course. And all of us guides were having fun and laughing. And, and the guy I was doing this with, like, it was helpful because we really were there checking each other. Like, as he took one clip off and put it on, I would watch and I'd be like, one clip, two clips, you're good, go. And then he would do the same for me. So even as we did this, it was exhilarating, but it was like this bonding experience that you had with another human being which is why so many companies do ropes course, because it really brings out you know, this idea of team. So we got to the end, and the end was this zip line. And you 
you, you put your two claws in and then you just kind of ride down the zip line like 100 feet and someone kind of catches you at the end and you get off. And then we went back to the beginning of the ropes course and we were laughing and we were having fun and then all of a sudden it got quiet and we heard a scream. And I looked up and I'll never forget this. It's been 25 years, something like that. I remember looking up and seeing little Paula, one of the guides who was from Wisconsin, except she wasn't standing on the rope. She was holding on underneath it. She had somehow forgot to put the clips in and she had slipped. And rather than standing on the wire securely with her lobster claws into the wire above her, she was below the wire unhooked, hanging on 30 feet above the ground. And all of a sudden, the warnings that our leaders had given us like resonated because we were in a situation where we were watching our friend hanging on for her life and none of us really knew what to do. All of a sudden, the warnings and the cautions came to life in a new way. And I realized that all the things that they had warned us about, I mean, it was very simple, just stay clipped in. Um, it wasn't to restrict our freedom. Rather, it was to maximize the experience. Now, it wasn't that you wouldn't get hurt. You know, if you slipped a little bit, you might cut your leg. Um, but if you slipped without the lobster claws in, you might die. You might die. As we think about sexuality, I, I think that ropes course is actually a helpful metaphor for us. Um, sex is a gift from God. It comes out of God's creative genius. He designed it as a gift to give to humanity because he loves us, God loves pleasure, and he wanted to give us something that would give us pleasure and purpose with each other. But that gift is meant to be used in a certain way. There's warnings that come with this gift because to use it the wrong way or to not be responsible with it can be deadly. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Sex is a gift from God that brings out and brings together oneness. It brings together oneness. Jesus says in this passage that when a man and a woman get married, they become one another in a sense. They are so close in the covenant of marriage that it's hard to tell who's who. And the sexual act between a husband and a wife is meant to mimic that oneness so that when a man and a woman lie naked together, it's hard to tell who's who because they are so close. Sex is a gift from God that bonds us together. It creates a new status before him in the context of marriage. You notice, you notice what Jesus says. He says, so what God has joined together, let no one separate. Sex is a gift from God, a gift of oneness. But it's also a gift for procreation and reproducing. 
man and woman are both man and woman are both equal image bearers of God. Men cannot bear the image of God without women, and women cannot bear the image of God without men. They equally reflect God's glory together. And together, when a man and a woman come together in marriage and they have a sexual relationship, the beautiful thing happens that they can actually reproduce another image bearer of God. They can create another human being that reflects God's glory. And they did it together. It's one of the most beautiful things that can happen. And that cannot happen apart from the seed of a man and the egg of a woman. Every human being that has ever existed has come because a seed of a man has impregnated the egg of a woman. God has made this gift for oneness, but also so that human beings can reproduce. And it's meant to be beautiful, but it's also meant to bring pleasure. God doesn't blush with this gift that he gave us. Paul would have shocked the Corinthians when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. He's talking about sex. A wife doesn't have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his body, but his wife does. Now, now here in 2023, we automatically read that and we go, How dare Paul say that a husband has a right over his wife's body? But in Corinth, 2,000 years ago, they would have read that the exact opposite. They did not view women as equal partners in the marriage nor in the sexual relationship. So when Paul writes, hey men, sexuality is about your wife's pleasure as well, they would have said, what? We thought this was for us. Paul says, no, when you get into the bedroom in the context of marriage, both are equal and sexuality is for a husband and wife to experience pleasure together. See, the Christian view of marriage is not that sex is dirty. It's that sex is divine. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God that he has given to tether us together. It creates a permanence, a oneness. It's meant to bond us. It's meant to be exhilarating. But then why does the Bible have so many warnings? I mean, honestly, almost every time the Bible talks about sex, there's a warning. There's a warning. And the reason that there's a warning anytime the Bible talks about sex is because it's so potent. It it, it needs extreme caution. Just like when we were getting up on the ropes course and we got tired of our leaders telling us how to hook in. So oftentimes I think we look at the warnings in the scriptures and we say, okay, okay, we get it. But yet the Bible doesn't let up. It's as if the Bible wants to let us know, no, really, this is powerful. If you do not heed these warnings, it can hurt you. See, the warnings in the Bible aren't meant to produce shame. The warnings in the Bible aren't meant to inhibit freedom. Rather, they're to maximize the gift that God has given us. They're to maximize the gift that God has given us. The author of Hebrews in in chapter 13 says, Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, 
because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Whenever you see the warning, there's those two words, sexually immoral and adulterers. Uh, Sexually immoral, the Greek word is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. And porneia means a distortion of what's meant to be. And so Paul's saying that there is a design for sexuality, that it comes in the context of a man and a woman in a permanent covenant relationship of marriage. And what doesn't fit in that is porneia. It's a distortion. But then he also uses that word adultery over and over in the warnings. And adultery is when you are committed to someone in the covenant of marriage, but you are sexually unfaithful and you have sex with someone else and therefore you break the oneness. And over and over, Paul, Jesus, and others warn us about distortion and adultery. Because sex is a gift from God. It's a gift that's given to glue us together. Sex is a glue that fastens us to each other and forms You know, when we were on that ropes course, it was an exhilarating bond that we had with that other person who was our partner, which is why so many companies do ropes courses, because it just bonds you. You get up on those ropes and you're like, man, this is crazy. I'm so high in the air. Your brain's firing all these chemicals and it permanently like changes the relationship of the person that you're partnered to. And that's the same. That's the truth with sex as well. God designed sex so that when you engage someone sexually, your mind fires all sorts of chemicals that's meant to bond you to them. Our culture gets this somewhat. Our culture understands this some way because our culture might say sex is a good thing between two people in a relationship as long as 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 it's consensual because they want to bond. But the Bible tells us, no, 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 it's, it's much more of a deeper bond than that. Sexuality fastens us to someone permanently. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul says, don't you know that anyone joined, joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. Now, the church in Corinth, they were a wild and crazy church. People say, we want to be part of the early church. And I always say, well, don't pick Corinth. Um, That church would go and join in with temples that as part of their worship service, they they would have sexual intercourse with prostitutes. And Paul's warning them, look, every time you have sex with someone, you are permanently joining yourself to that person so that your bodies become one. There's a physiological permanence that, that happens, which is why when you have a sexual encounter with someone and you run into them five years later, one of the thoughts that comes through your mind is, I had sex with them. That's meant to happen. That's the way God designed it because it, it, it joins us so deeply. There is a physiological permanence that happens. And one of the things that we think in our culture is, look, while I'm young, I can go sow some wild oats. I can go run around and I can experiment sexually. And then when I get older, I'll settle down and I'll commit to someone. Not realizing that in our youth, we have glued ourselves, we have fastened ourselves 
in such a way that we have been misshapen and misformed. See, the, the sexual act not only fastens us to someone physiologically, but it forms us. Paul says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his body. See, we think in our culture like sexuality is about expressing myself. And what Paul's saying is there's something that happens in you, the way God's designed it, that it's not just expressing, it's forming you. It's shaping who you are. See, when we have sex with someone, it's not just that we have this part of us. It's not just that we have this sexual part of us. We are whole integrated selves. We are emotions. We are stories. We are sexuality. All of that enters in. And one author says that what Paul's getting at is that when we continually enter into sexual relationships with different people, we're entering into personal disintegration. Sex is that powerful. It forms us so deeply on that level. Studies are showing more and more that with people who enter into the hookup culture, the immediate result of a sexual encounter is euphoria. Feels amazing. You're wanted. You had pleasure. You had an orgasm. It feels great. But studies are showing that that doesn't last very long before people start to just feel shame. And here's the weird thing. It's not just women that feel that way. Studies are showing that more and more guys are saying, in that one night stand, I don't feel good about myself the day after. Now, in our culture, we are celebrating sexual freedom. In fact, during the sexual revolution, one of the things that happened in the 60s and 70s was that women were sort of given equal standing. If guys can sleep around, then women can sleep around. But more and more studies are showing that that is so destructive long-term to women. It's forming them in a way that deteriorizes their mental health. Now, I'm talking about studies that aren't done by Christian people. I'm talking about studies that have been done by like feminist scholars who say that someone's increased sexual experience will also decrease their mental health. It forms them. Not only that, but it forms men. What does it mean for a man to use a woman over and over and over again and not commit himself to her? How does that form a man? and his view of women. It's not good. Jonathan Grant, who wrote the book Divine Sex, said, the cruel irony is that contemporary men and women view intimate or sexual relationships as essential to their personal identity, and at the same time, they struggle to commit themselves fully to these relationships. So on one hand, I have to have this sexual encounter. It's part of who I am. At the very same time, there's a, just a, a struggle to commit themselves in the midst of that. We, we really struggle with this because the church has the reputation of shaming people when it comes to sexuality. But here's the thing. I'm not even really talking about um, 
what the Bible says at this moment. What I'm, what I'm saying is we've been lied to by the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution said sex without consequences. Anyone that puts boundaries around sex is just an authority that's trying to take away our pleasure and our freedom. Being sexually expressive is a core to identity to who you are. And we've ignored the fallout of all that. Divorce, depression, disease. Not only that, but we are so influenced by consumerism that we look at other people and think that they are sexual experiences to be consumed. But feminist scholar Louise Perry says, once you permit the idea that people can be products, everything is corroded. Everything is corroded. Which is why one of the reasons that pornography is so deformative. We consume people who are images for our own pleasure. And the the strange thing about pornography is the more you use it seeking pleasure, the more it actually inhibits you from engaging in pleasure in real life because your mind is formed by these images. Please please hear me as a pastor. I'm not saying all this to make you feel bad. I'm trying to help you see why you do feel. I'm not saying this to beat you up. I want you to understand why you are beat up. I want you to understand the realities. So many people say the church is only about shame and guilt when it comes to sexuality. And ignore all the secular voices who are saying basically that the biblical model of sexuality is the most healthy. Study after study is saying that the hookup culture and and impermanent sex and frequent sexual partners are actually bad for our mental health. It doesn't bring us to flourish. And yet the Bible presents this beautiful picture of what sexuality is. Warnings about ignoring God's design. And yet offers hope for those who have ignored God's design. See, sex also brings a focus on God and the gospel. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God in the area of sexuality. Whether it is actions, whether it is words, whether it is thoughts in our mind. Now, here's the thing. Uh, God has a plan for us sexually. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says, for this is God's will, your sanctification, being being like Christ, that you keep away from sexual immorality. Now, if you've sinned sexually, will God forgive you? Yes, completely, fully. But part of knowing God is being willing to say, I will follow his design. I will stay tethered to the cord that he tells me. I will not misuse this. So many people... uh, think about God as having a plan for their life, but ignore God's design for their sex life. So God has a plan, but then also God wants to rescue us when we ignore his plan. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, Paul says, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No matter what you've done sexually, if you know Jesus Christ, you can be washed fully clean. Not only that, but he doesn't hold you down as some second-rate citizen of his kingdom. He sets you apart and says, as I clean you, I will use you. Because you are justified, though you have not acted right, you are declared right before God because of what Jesus has done. And then the kicker really to this is Jesus' commitment to us. In verse 17, it says, anyone joined to the Lord is one with spirit, one spirit with him. Paul's talking to these people who are sleeping with prostitutes. And he said, when you sleep with them, you're glued to them. And yet, though you're that wicked, Jesus glues himself to you. Same word, same Greek word. Anyone joined to the Lord, anyone glued to the Lord is one spirit with him. In the midst of the mess that these people have made, in the midst of the mess that we have made, Jesus is with us, willing to rescue us and redeem us. I know I left Paula up on the line there. I know when I told the story, she was hanging there. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't trained to do this. But one of our leaders saw immediately what was happening and scrambled to rescue her. He he climbed up very quickly, locked him with his lobster claw, and then very delicately, he walked on the line that Paula was hanging from for her life. And when he got to her, he hooked himself to her. And he pulled her in close until he could hook her into safety, risking himself. Jesus is the same with us. Jesus glues himself and rescues sinners who are delicately hanging on. Though we've glued ourselves wrongly to other people, Jesus glues himself to us. He rescues us. He saves us. Sex reminds us most deeply of our need for a Savior, one who comes and rescues us and says, I will not hold your past against you. I will wash you. I will clean you. I will set you apart, and I will bind myself to you forever. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's Word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week. Thank you.